Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulda. I'm your podcast host. And today we're going to dig into the current state of COVID-19. With all of the topical attention it's getting here in the States, it's essential that we really start to separate what is the fact and what is the fiction? And what I'd like to do today is dig down one level deeper than what we're getting in the major media. So today is March 11, 2020. I usually don't timestamp these episodes because I prefer for them to be kind of timeless. However, a lot of people have been asking for an analysis of what's happening right now. So I turn to an expert. Our guest is a physician who's recognized by his YouTube handle, Chubby Emu. He presents videos that are well-produced, really intriguing, and present medical cases that have a little bit more of a, um, uh, almost a house-like feel that, you know, why did this happen and what are the reasons? How is it manifesting as symptoms? And so this was a perfect person to ask to join us for today. So welcome to the podcast, Chubby. Thanks, Kevin. (laughs) Yeah, so... um, you really have helped me a lot to understand different medical aspects of certain trends that are happening either in medicine or health related trends. But I think that it's a great medium for YouTube and and you to really begin to talk about this really important problem of COVID-19. What I'd really like to know today from you is what's happening a level deeper than we're seeing. So we've heard this referred to as SARS-CoV-2, COVID-2019, Where does all of that come from? So a lot of that comes from the naming convention because the name coronavirus itself is kind of a broad term in that it describes a family of viruses. So the original SARS outbreak that came out in 2003 was in fact another coronavirus. And so when we talk about in the space of viruses in general, Coronaviruses sit in uh, a very specific pool, and corona referring to the crown shape of the spikes. And so when you have uh, that kind of naming convention, it sounds a little bit more catchy when you say coronavirus right now, but in context of the science and the people who have been studying viruses since uh, probably around the last 60 or 70 years, when you say coronavirus, you're referring to thousands of different viruses. So the problem therein was that how do we describe the disease that's caused by this particular virus that happens to be a coronavirus? And how should we identify the virus? So when we have the official name of it, SARS-CoV-2, that's the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome uh, Coronavirus 2. It's uh, sometimes been shortened as SARS-2. That's describing the virus. And then when we say COVID-19, 
That's the description of the disease. And the problem that comes with it is that a lot of times COVID-19 and the clinical features that come out of it are not specific. So they mimic a lot of other uh, viral respiratory infections that happen. So when we have a name for it, that gives it very specific. Uh, when we say 19, that originated from 2019. And then the SARS-CoV-2, the 2 designation shows that it's not the same as the original SARS virus, which through um, the genomic analysis will then show us that uh, they are there are some similarities, but there's actually different uh, lineages that come out of them. Well, it's all really interesting in that where how it was discovered. So you imagine that physicians in hospitals in the area where this may have first started, you know, the patient zero area, that if they show up to a hospital emergency room presenting with some spectrum of, of symptoms, that you know, doctors may just consider this pneumonia and move on from there. But what was unique with COVID-19, 2019, that patients began presenting with comorbidities that doctors recognized? Yes. Um, the, the actual finding of the virus uh, was kind of interesting. So there was a paper was published in February of 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine. They talked about how that virus was first isolated. What they did was they took samples from patients in Wuhan, China at the end of January, uh, respiratory samples from the, the, lower, uh, the lower parts of the lungs on both sides, and they compared it with a control from patients in Beijing where they knew what the causative agents of those pneumonias were. And what they did was they infected a cell culture of healthy lung tissue, and they were able to replicate the virus from there and isolate parts of the genomic material or the genetic material that came about. And then that was how they were able to finally sequence the virus. And when they looked through it, they did find that there were some similarities in uh, that genome to some other coronaviruses. And that was the initial identification of SARS-CoV-2 that we have published in literature. And so how specifically does the virus harm people? I mean, is it, uh, you know, it's respiratory, obviously, but how does this relate to um, the, the, the interaction at, say, the molecular or biochemical level, like with ACE2 and other uh, aspects of how the virus infects? Yeah. So we have the uh, gen we have the genome of the entire virus, and when we look at the spike, there was a couple of papers that were published that were talking about the glycoproteins that were specifically on the SARS-CoV-2 spike. And when they analyzed it, it was similar, not the same, but similar to SARS-CoV-1. And so from there, we they found that uh, running some of the simulations, the entry, so to say, into a human cell is mediated through its interaction through ACE2. And so when we have uh, a lot of ACE2 that's expressed in the lower lobes of both of our lungs, then that is that seems to be how the viral replication uh, happens is through that interaction. Well, ACE2 is also found in other tissues in the body. So is that a critical part of the infection cycle and ultimately contributing to mortality? 
Yes. So that the the thing is, is that uh, there's virus related cardiomyopathy. So there's uh, been documented in several case reports and also uh, retrospective data looking at certain populations at specific time points. They found out that there is heart damage, which isn't out of the ordinary given cardiopulmonary interaction in that the heart has to pump blood to the lungs to exchange the, uh, exchange the gases. And so when you have that interaction, just due to the proximity and due to the physiology and the anatomy of that area, there is a chance where some of that virus could get to the heart. And so there's other areas that it, interact, that it could interact with. So in the stomach, there is also ACE2 expression there. And there's also ACE2 expression in male anatomy. And there's some papers that are uh, published recently in uh, probably around the end of February, beginning of March, where they are talking about that there is potential CNS, so central nervous system interactions, although I'm not sure if that would be mediated through ACE2. And so we're not exactly sure. The evidence isn't quite there. The only things that they've mentioned is that uh, viruses have been detected in autopsies of the SARS-1 patients back in 2002, 2003. And so now they're speculating that it could have an, uh, an impact on the respiratory centers in the brain, but that's not strong evidence right now. I guess it makes sense in a way because you see so many of the symptoms manifest as uh, respiratory symptoms. But what is the specifics of that? So you mentioned these are in the lower lobes of the lungs. How do these pneumonias develop because of the presence of a virus? So they develop through uh, inflammation. And so that is how uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome develops in the, in the patients who are especially ill or, or who do have pre-existing conditions and comorbidities to begin with. And so what happens is that when the lungs detect that there is some kind of damage to the epithelium, the immune system, so it's the host-mediated response, comes in and that inflammation causes vasodilation. It causes fluid to fill into the lungs. And so when you have that fluid at the interface where gases can exchange for oxygen and carbon dioxide with the blood... When you have that fluid blocking that interface, then it becomes much more difficult for that gas to actually, uh, that gas exchange to happen. And so when you have that difficulty of exchange, the, there's parts of the brain that are going to tell you to try to breathe harder, to try to breathe faster, and it just won't happen because you have that physical blockage of the fluid that's due to the host-mediated response. Well, certainly we have an issue with the uh, pulmonary side of this and, and the respiratory issues that can be associated with fluid in the lungs. But a lot of the patients are dying of uh, bacterial co-infections, things uh, spreading to the kidneys or you know issues in the heart. Um, how does that happen? So that's actually interesting. A lot of the uh, data that we have about secondary infections at the height of a viral pneumonia we're not exactly sure how that mechanism happens, and it could be due to multiple different factors. And so from what I've heard, and these were, this is from some of my colleagues 
who are immunologists, they've talked about different cases. And the data that we have is based on just the generic flu. And so when we look at the viral pneumonia that comes out of a severe case of the flu, one of the things that one of the hypotheses that could be put forward is that viral mechanisms exhaust the immune system's ability to fight against bacterial infection. And so when you're admitted in a hospital for a long enough time, there's a higher chance every day that you're there that you're going to get a hospital-acquired infection, especially if you're uh, invasively ventilated. And so in the intensive care unit, you're probably going to have a tube down your throat and you're going to be having a machine that breathes for you. There's a chance that bacteria is going to start growing on that. It's going to invade and it's going to get into your lungs. And when you have compromise in your lungs already from some kind of viral infection, then that could increase your chances of getting a hospital acquired bacterial infection, if not a fungal infection that comes up. Okay, that, that makes a lot more sense. So, but how does this really just seem to be more of a problem with older folks? I mean, everybody's got the same hardware in terms of lungs, kidneys, you know, all that stuff. How is it that older folks are, are have seeing such a higher mortality rate from this? Is it because of they're already kind of compromised by being elderly? Or is it that they're out pulling handles of slot machines and bingo cards where they're exposed to more of the virus? So it looks like there's a couple of prognostic factors uh, that can come into play in terms of the severity of the illness. So for example, if in an ICU patient that has COVID-19, if they have something called disseminated intravascular coagulation, which means that there's a problem with how the blood clots, parts of the blood is going to form small clots that are going to lodge into the organs and other parts are going to run out of those clotting factors. So they're essentially going to thin out, which means that parts of your microvasculature are going to be blocked. And then other parts are just going to start hemorrhaging. And when you have that, uh, it's called DIC, that seems to be a very high mortality rate in patients with COVID-19 to that extent. And so uh, the elderly in general, uh, it seems like they are more susceptible to deaths from things like the flu. And that's just because of, I, I guess, with age, you're going to start to have uh, some changes in your body. And though that could lead to some immunocompromise compared to someone who is 20. Um, but that data seems to be a little bit more nebulous. But what we do know for sure is that older people are definitely at higher risk for mortality of COVID-19. Well, and it's an, it's an RNA virus and it's, yes. it's a, it's upon infection. So many other RNA viruses, we have some kind of generic antivirals, things like acyclovir that work on certain types of RNA viruses. So are there antiviral compounds that can be used on COVID-19 and why aren't we hearing about that? Yeah, so it's possible. I know back in January when I was in contact with the doctors in Wuhan, they had told me that uh, there were certain HIV medications that could work. And the mechanism of how those would work would be a very generic antiviral mechanism. 
And uh, so when we hear about these different compounds, you know, there's more information about chloroquine that might be entering a trial if it hasn't already in China. Uh, that would be with um, some of the genetic replication that might happen mediated through zinc, specifically with chloroquine. But then you have uh, compounds like remdesivir, which are uh, investigational compounds right now. And so th they were originally developed for Ebola, but now they're seeing some efficacy. I'm not entirely sure how that trial is proceeding right now, but in the January 31st publication in the New England Journal of Medicine that highlights that first patient presenting here in America in Washington state, that patient was treated with remdesivir, which appears to be an adenosine analog. And the way that that works would be to replicate uh, erroneously one of the backbones of RNA so that the genetic material of the virus would not be uh, replicated properly. And so without that, then you cannot create the, uh, vital gen viral, uh, the viral proteins that would be necessary to form uh, a full SARS-CoV-2 virus. Yeah, I haven't looked at remdesivir, but you know, acyclovir, AZT, other things work in similar ways, right? They're just chain terminators of viral replication. So they um, limit the ability for the virus to reproduce its genetic material and shut it down at that level. Is that kind of what remdesivir is doing? Uh, yes. So that's that's the proposed mechanism. So I, it looks like in public literature right now or peer-reviewed literature, the mechanism is a little bit more unknown. They've put forth uh, that, that adenosine analog as the primary one based on experience from previous molecules. Yeah, it probably was something on the shelf that was either HIV or, you know, who else, you know, some other kind of viral uh, issue. But, you know, but it's great that it's at least being administered and give, given a shot. You know, that's good. Yes. Yeah. So, so when we look at other advice, you know, people are saying, here's this novel situation. I know that uh, at the university where I work, they just had all the classes go online, uh, keep all of the people kind of de-intensify or de-densify, as they said, uh, populations uh, to decrease this. So what is the major route of transmission of this thing that's been confirmed? So major route of transmission is through the respiratory droplets. And so, and also contact. Um, so when they talk about social distancing, they're talking about things like, you know, staying six feet away from others. Uh, just if in the case they cough or sneeze, you definitely do not want to be anywhere close to them when that happens. Um, and that seems to be the main mode of transmission that we know of right now. And so those are where the recommendations are based off of. And so, you know, when we have contact, they talk about washing your hands, don't touching your face, because, you know, if you rub your eyes and you have virus on your hands, it could go through mucous membranes to transport and go through into the lungs, right? And so there's uh, different modes and that reflects in how the recommendations are being given right now in terms of mitigating some of the spread. Is there any advice with respect to surface spread? Is this something that lives on uh, non-biological surfaces for any length of time? So the data is not very good on in terms of how long it stays alive on surfaces. I've seen ranges of, you know, just a couple of hours to a couple of days. Um, based on how 
other viruses work, and this is really just an extrapolation. Uh, we, we're not 100% sure. It doesn't seem like it's going to be on for more than, let's say, 8 to 12 hours. And that's just basing on other viruses. But what we do know is that if you do wash your hands um, for 20 seconds, and preferably if you do it twice, 20 seconds each time, then that is a, a good mitigator of spread. That's really good advice, but can you touch on why washing your hands is better than Purell or any of these uh, ethanol-based preparations? Yeah, so the ethanol-based preparations, uh, when you sanitize your hands with those, uh, you're not rinsing off some of the debris that's existing on your hands. So even if it might kill some of the viruses, uh, it doesn't fully wash off uh, a lot of the debris that's on your hands. So the ideal situation if you have access to it, would be to wash your hands uh, often, especially when you're outside, uh, not in your house, and also when you come into contact with something that's not from inside of your house. There was a really good thread on Twitter about this, about why soap was your superior option. And the fact that it that soap itself disrupts the lipid bilayers inside a viral uh, protein capsid, you know, that, that it actually breaks down the virus itself, whereas ethanol, I don't, I, I don't know if it just desiccates things, you know, that it just sucks the uh, water out for lack of a better term. So it really seems like soap and water is really your best way to, to protect yourself. Is So that's really the consensus at this point? Yes. And so that's, that's one precaution uh, definitely to take. And then this um, social distancing is another recommendation to take. And also, I know some of the states now have uh, banned social gatherings of more than a certain number of people. I've seen the number range from 50 to 250 or even to 1,000, although I, I think 1,000 might be really uh, for large events like you know sports events or something. But uh, the social distancing and the washing the hands and you know it, if travel is not absolutely necessary at this point in time, um, definitely... Uh, this is just my personal opinion. I would think twice about travel if I didn't absolutely need it. Well, with that in mind, how much of a problem is asymptomatic spread? Oh, it, it's a, it, I think it's a very big problem, especially when you have community spread. So what had happened in Washington state is that that patient who was described in the January 31st New England Journal publication, it appeared that uh, that individual may have unknowingly spread. If not that one person, then it might have been uh, in, within the couple of days that we didn't even really know about this virus. Because if you think back to January, um, a lot of the news cycle was not talking about this at that point. It wasn't until maybe around January 23rd when Wuhan was fully in lockdown at 10 a.m. local time over there. And so it's possible that that spread uh, was cryptic, meaning that throughout February, the virus had been spreading. And because we're in a flu season right now, it's very possible that it was mistaken for a flu. And the testing criteria all throughout February here in the United States was you had to have had tr uh, previous travel to China. And so if you didn't have that travel to China, that would rule out a lot of the people that may have had contact with whoever that initial patient was. And so we could have had COVID-19 patients present like a flu patient without getting tested. 
and they might have gone on to spread more throughout the community and completely skirt the initial criteria of having had prior travel to China. No, that's exactly right. That you know, the presentation of the disease spectrum uh, in in a hospital setting would probably look a lot like pneumonia or just standard flu, uh, maybe even some hints of pneumonia, and that you wouldn't necessarily start to associate this with COVID nineteen. And so, you know, I could understand that back in the beginning, but right now it seems like places like Italy are approaching their ICU capacity and are trying to limit their cases of COVID-19, or at least uh, cases of flu that are mistaken for COVID-19. So is there any advice from a physician about flu shots and the necessity of a standard influenza vaccine, you know, here in March, you know, at the end of what is traditionally a flu season, is there still a good reason to get a flu shot just so you're not clogging a system with symptoms that appear to be COVID-19? So with, when it comes to the flu shot, I mean, I, this is a personal uh, thing with me is that I feel like bringing the flu up right now, it is important to bring up the flu, but as we have it right now with the 10,000 cases that are in Italy, uh, evaluating the patients for uh, cr- the criteria to admit them into critical care is a, is a big deal because the longer you are admitted into an ICU, the longer your physical therapy is going to be needed after your discharge, provided that you recover completely from the disease. And so... I feel um, bringing that in here to America right now, there's every day now you see more states that are coming up and testing positive for COVID-19. And these are laboratory, uh, these are laboratory diagnoses that which we can still do right now. When we look at China by February 12th, they weren't able to do laboratory diagnosis anymore. And so they went into a clinical diagnosis, which then caused the number of cases to sharply increase. And so without having laboratory confirmation, it's possible that some of these flu patients were lumped into that group, but we can't know for sure. And so uh, I feel like bringing up the flu in the past, uh, I, I don't have data on this, but bringing that into the conversation has somewhat changed the public opinion here. And so you have a lot of people not taking this syndromic presentation of COVID-19 very, sim- uh, very seriously because of the saying, it's just a flu bro. And so having that mentality, I think, is kind of getting in the way of understanding the severity. Because even if, let's say, a 20-year-old college kid is going to be fine, right? There's a, the, by the numbers and by the data, this person, if they get COVID-19, is it's likely to be a very moderate case. The problem with them having it is that they could spread it to their parents who might be able to spread it to their grandparents. And if their grandparents are a current uh, cancer patient, there's not good outcomes for people like that for having this disease. And so having that 20-year-old person be okay, it's good for them but spreading it on, you can't just think about it from one person. So uh, I, I think now is the time where we have to understand this is COVID-19. This is not just the flu. 
And so having that um, difference in distinction, I think, is important for us to make right now because we need to shut down the idea that it's just a flu uh, because it's a lot more serious for people who are a lot older. And um, like the CDC has said, uh, Dr. Fauci said that the mortality rate is 10 times higher than the flu. Well, that's a really interesting point because I followed what Dr. Fauci has been saying. He's an excellent source of information. But I've heard a lot of other physician opinion on this that really some would say, you know, cat's out of the bag at this point and that this is an infection that's going to run its course with the population uh, unless those can become vaccinated with a yet-to-be-released vaccine. But that this is uh, epidemiologically going to be very difficult to quash as China seems to have done. And, you know, what are you hearing as a physician in, in these kinds of areas? Uh, so there was, uh, there's a lot of talk about flattening the curve right now, and that's, that's coming into the social isolation and all the recommendations that are coming out right now, is that he did say today, March 11th, I believe, that um, it's going to get worse, and the, there's, there's several reasons for that. And so now that we're starting to have more availability of testing and we don't have that criteria of having only had prior travel to China, now there's going to be a lot more cases that are going to come out positive. I remember back in February, there was a, there was a couple commentators saying that China was buying the world time. And back in February, if you can remember, even though the cases did seem to be limited in China, and if you look in the data inside China, it looked to be more limited in the Hubei province, where the city of Wuhan is. It almost kind of seemed like the world, at least for a couple of days, didn't think too much about it. But that idea of China is buying the world time never really left me, because then you started seeing the spread in Japan and then South Korea, and then Italy, and then now here in a majority of the states. And so having that, we can still quash the peak of that curve, uh, but it's up to the authorities on how they want to handle that, because there's going to be uh, some tough decisions that are going to have to be made. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not in a position to speak about how they're going to execute that, but in terms of squashing that curve, it's really important that they do it soon because, you know, it is true. The cat is out of the bag. Now it is how are you going to respond to it? Uh, I would at least hope we don't have to resort to, you know, bolting people in their homes. Um, but you do see reports of people that, you know, break quarantine against orders and, you know, go into public places. And so, you know, people are very unhappy when they hear about that. And that's definitely not something that you want. But so then the question is, is then what do you do? Do you force that person to stay in some kind of containment zone? Um, or do you let them, you know, do as they wish? It, it's, you know, if you do one or the other, that's going to change how that peak on that curve looks. No, that's a really good point. I, it's something that, you know, really brings us into a different phase of this that's intriguing to watch unfold as toilet paper disappears from the shelves, as uh, people who are told to remain in quarantine get out, it brings up the interesting ways in which we are not necessarily prepared socially, if not um, medically, to be able to respond 
to solve such a crisis. And it's been really, it's been intriguing to watch it unfold. Do you have any uh, crystal ball as to what you or what others are saying is going to happen ultimately with, with the disease? Oh, that's hard to say. Uh, it's hard to make any predictions right now. I think it's, uh, it's on the authorities and it's on us individually to uh, respond in a way that I think, I think the best way would be uh, to remain calm and you know, alert, not anxious is a, is a good way to start with that. And how the authorities want to respond to this, I, they are doing something. Um, and you know, I'm, I don't think I'm in a position to comment on you know, its effectiveness because the amount of cases that are coming out, uh, the reported cases is for sure going to be lower than the real number of cases. And that's going to be like that in every single country. Uh, China was the, you know, the first to be like that. And so we, with what we know right now, the number of cases that are here in America are the ones that are confirmed. And so that is inherently a lower number than real number. And the thing is, we're not going to know what the real number looks like, but it'll have to depend on people on how they want to react and how they want to uh, compose themselves during this time, because this is a crisis, but there is things that you can do to you know, keep yourself afloat. And so, like I say, alert, not anxious. I've said it in my videos. Um, you know, other colleagues who are making videos have said the exact same thing. And I think that's a good way to live. And we're going to see as this unfolds over the next couple of weeks, I don't think I can make, you know, hard predictions, but the best course of action that we can do is to hopefully flatten that curve so that that peak uh, is a lot lower than what it could be. No, it's excellent, excellent thing, excellent thought. You know, for me, it's the reminder that detection is not equal to infection, and that those two things are likely very different. And that maybe the best advice from physicians and from you know anybody involved in this, politicians especially, would be don't just think of yourself here. Think of the other people. Whether you're going to take all the toilet paper off the shelf steal the Purell from the, from the hospital, or whether you're just going to choose to be careful about your own sanitation, washing your hands. And if you start not feeling well, isolating yourself, there's a lot of things that individuals can do to not just protect themselves, but to protect the most vulnerable. And I think maybe this is a good time for us to all really emphasize that, that, you know, there are children, there are elderly, there are immunocompromised people that need us to change the way we're behaving in the presence of this potential pathogen. So if people wanted to learn more about you and uh, maybe some good sources that you could provide, uh, could you please give me an idea of where they find information on your YouTube channel and other places you find really good as sources of information? Yeah, definitely. So my YouTube channel is, um, is youtube.com slash uh, you, you would search for Chubby Emu. And it's all one word. Um, for information, the best sources for general population is the CDC. And for clinicians who want to learn more, who are inevitably, at least in their own practice capacity, are going to come into contact with these kinds of patients, um, the best course would be New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet. There's been a lot of 
preprints that are coming out of BioArchive, and it's spelled like B-I-O-R-X-I-V. And so know that those papers are preprints and they haven't fully qualified through their uh, peer reviews. And so the preprints are uh, good grounds for getting some ideas for what the conversation is, but know that they aren't fully vetted at that point in time as they exist on that site. And so when they appear in the peer-reviewed journals, then that is going to be information that's uh, going to have been vetted. And I find that to be uh, a little bit higher quality information at that point in time. It's not to say that the preprints are of low quality, but the preprints are to be taken as the current dialogue that's happening in that space. No, great point. And there are some things on the preprint servers that are completely wrong and insane. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. And there's definitely retractions on there. And so the the thing is is that a lot of times uh, headlines will, you know, make points about some of these papers that do inevitably get retracted. And so a lot of times if, even if you just kind of look at the paper, uh, there's sometimes in these retracted papers there's things that don't quite look right. And they don't quite look right to a large amount of people. And there's usually a, a big conversation that's happening in there. And so when you look at that conversation, uh, you're going to need to rely on your own previous experiences and your prior knowledge and determine whether or not that's a good source of information. Because I have to say, sometimes in peer-reviewed journals, sometimes the, the peers that are reviewing it maybe from other specialties or other disciplines. And so having a large number of people look at something is always a good idea because you're able to bring in different perspectives. So I can give you an example. There's a paper that's uh, in preprint right now, or I, I think it's in preprint. They're talking about two different strains of the virus, an L and an S. And so they're talking about a couple of amino acid substitutions in the genome of the virus. And so there's a lot of speculation that's going on as to, you know, which one is more infective, which one causes more severe disease. And when we look at that, there are some people that say if it's a, you know, very minor set of mutations, then it might not have as big an impact. But the reality is, is that we're not 100% sure because there are, for example, certain cancers that arise from a single point mutation on a single nucleotide that dramatically alters one protein that cascades down the activity within a cell that causes the cancer. So, you know, if it's just a little mutation causing a problem, it could be a big thing. It also has a high chance to not be a big thing, but it is something to think about. And, you know, having, having that kind of conversation, I think, is always a good Inside the, inside the scientific community so that we can vet some of the ideas that are being put forth. Well, awesome. Well, that's great advice. Dr. Chubby Imu, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. He really um, provided a level of discussion that we haven't had in the major media and really had to dig for in uh, other aspects of media. And your advice and thoughts here are really appreciated. So thank you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And as always, thank you listeners for following this on the Talking Biotech podcast. Think about other folks in this time of what looks like to be a interesting unfolding, potentially even a crisis. Think about the folks who have compromises and what you can do to protect them. 
And that means becoming fully immunized against transmissible diseases that we can control. And also washing your hands, being careful of social space and social settings, and doing what you can to worry about others. And don't steal the toilet paper from my work. Uh, This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere.
You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.